This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Michelle Brofman, author of the novel Washing the Dead. Her short stories and essays have appeared in the Washington Post, Slate, Lilith Magazine, Minnesota Review, and more. Brofman is a former documentary filmmaker and now teaches fiction at Johns Hopkins University. Her novel, Washing the Dead, tells the tale of Barbara, a suburban Milwaukee woman struggling to forgive her estranged mother, whose affair ripped her from their Orthodox Jewish community. Barbara is summoned back to the community when the rabbi's wife unexpectedly invites her to perform a tahara, or ritual washing of the dead. Tell me, your, your novel, Washing the Dead, tell me about choosing the title and what it means to you. The novel began as a short story, and it was basically during a period of my life when I was very enamored of the Tahara, the Jewish burial ritual. And I think my husband picked the title for the short story. He's really good with titles. He picks most of them. And then as it morphed into a novel, it became really more metaphorical than literal. So this there are three burial rituals featured in the book, but it's really a metaphor for my character's quest to forgive and to heal and to wash the dead parts of herself. And we'll get back to the Tahara and, and, and what it is, but tell me a little bit more about the impetus for this book. Generally, this is a book of three generations of women, mostly within the Orthodox temple, but at points, the main character leaves. So tell me about what spurred on writing this book. I had had I had the idea for this book in my head for quite a long time. Actually, probably when I was in graduate school, I was taking my kids to um, a Jewish preschool, and I was spending a lot of time in synagogues. And I remembered how much my synagogue meant to me, and it, all of these, you know, was just observing these daily rituals. And I thought, gosh, what would it be like to create a character who was very um, much defined by her faith and her, you know, adherence to 613 of God's commandments? And then what would it be like to take all that away from her? And that's kind of what started it. Um, And this character emerged over a very long period of time. Did you have to delve a lot into learning about orthodoxy before you could really write her character. I know you grew up Orthodox for a a while, but there's a lot of rules in this kind of very strict religion. I did grow up in an Orthodox community, so probably the most important thing was I had a sense of the ethos of the community, what it felt like to sit on the women's side of the synagogue. But of course, you know, I hadn't been a part of this community for years and years, so I did do quite a bit of research. Did you find things along the way in your research that surprised you? I mean, you were part of this community as a child, but did you learn things that you didn't really know or things that were so startling or interesting to you that they made it into the book in a bigger way? Oh, yes. Well, one example is the mikvah, because there was a mikvah, which is a holy pool of rainwater in this Orthodox synagogue that I grew up in. But I was young. It was just the stairway we weren't supposed to go down. And when I decided that I wanted to put it in the book, I knew very little about the that particular ritual. And so I really did a lot of research. I um, I read a lot, and same thing goes with the burial rituals. I knew nothing about the burial rituals, and I 
you know, became um, acquainted with them through the people who performed that ritual in my synagogue. They were wonderful and generous and really helped me understand the meaning of it as well as the mechanics of it. So you structure your book around these three washings, the mikvah and the tahara, and your book is separated into three parts. Explain deeper what each is. Explain what a mikvah and a tahara is and then why you chose this as the structure. Well, initially I was going to structure the book around three taharot, three burial washings, and it just didn't work that way. It didn't work at all. So I picked them because each of them have something to do with both literally and metaphorically with my character's quest to forgive and to heal, although she doesn't know she's on this quest. So the first ritual is the tahara, and that's the Jewish burial ritual. And that ritual intrigued me because it's the highest form of a mitzvah, a good deed, meaning because the recipient can never repay you. And so I thought, wow, this would be a great way to have her start. And what better, you know, way for her to start on her quest than to perform this ritual next to a woman she thinks has exiled her, which is the rabbi's wife, and to perform the ritual on this woman who had stepped in to mother her when her own mother had abandoned her and who was very beloved. So that's kind of why I picked the first one. The second washing is a mikvah immersion. And in order for my character, Barbara, to forgive and to heal, she had to forgive herself for some of her reactions during her exile and from this Orthodox community. And so that seemed like the perfect way for her to you know, immerse herself in water and, 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 um, cleanse herself. And then the final Tahara has to do with more with her. It's a very difficult Tahara for her to perform. And it has to do with the final act, the final act of forgiveness that she, you know, she has to engage in. And so what are the reasons that an Orthodox woman would go into a mikvah? Well, there are several reasons, and it's not just Orthodox women who go into mikvahs either. Um, people go into mikvahs for when they convert, and they they perform this ritual um, some after a surgery or um, something painful, the loss of a baby or another kind of traumatic experience to heal. Men also use the mikvah. Um, sometimes before the high holidays, the kohanim will, the cantors will go and immerse themselves in, in the mikvah and, and other occasions as well. And then there are the family purity laws for Orthodox women, so they do not, um, in order for them to have sex with their husbands, they need to be clean. So after their menstrual cycle, they'll immerse themselves in the mikvah, and then they'll be ready to be with their husbands in a sexual way. Have you, you know, in your research, did you do a mikvah and a tahara? I did not do a mikvah immersion, but I did perform a tahara. And tell me about that. The tahara is just an absolutely stunning and beautiful ritual. And it's um, a ritual that's performed with other people, partially because you, it's, imp- it's been possible to do all the lifting. You know, for, with one person can't possibly do that because the body is very heavy. And it's very well orchestrated in terms of there has to be a continuous stream of, you know, pouring of the water. And it's similar to when a baby comes into the, the world, they're sponge bathed and they're swaddled. And the beautiful, beautiful part about this ritual is the 
the body is sent out of the world with that kind of care and tenderness. The water is tested to make sure it's not too cold or too hot. I mean, the body is washed in a very respectful way to preserve modesty. And it's just an awesome, respectful, and very nurturing, tender ritual. And the prayers are very beautiful as well. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Michelle Braffman, author of the novel, Washing the Dead. So one of the things in your book is that there's a lot of secrets. It's three generations of women. Barbara is the main character. Her mother is June. Her daughter is Lily. And Barbara is primarily, she's the keeper of secrets, plus she has created some of her own during this narrative. And one of the things that I think is really interesting in novels in first person is how you keep and reveal secrets. And I'm wondering if you thought about this, because we're seeing the world through Barbara's eyes. I'm just wondering if this was a challenge for you to have all these secrets as as a writer and how to reveal them to your reader. Oh, it was a huge challenge to figure out when to reveal these secrets. Absolutely. And I think those secrets got moved around a lot (laughs) throughout the revision process because they don't work if they're revealed too early or too late. And you hit you hit the nail on the head in terms of probably one of the major um, focuses of my revision was to figure out, A, what the secrets are. I didn't want to superimpose them on the story to create drama. Well, I did in several drafts, and they just didn't work. They felt really manipulative. So it was a question of figuring out which secrets are organic to the story, organic to the character, and where do I put them so that they pull the reader along through the, the the story, but they're not obvious. They're not, you know, I don't my scenes aren't showing. And it was really hard. So your main character, Barbara, is portrayed as having this idyllic childhood. She's in the temple, she doesn't question anything, and then her mom has this affair that kind of she in the family only knows about. Her brother and father don't really know or we think that they don't know at first. And then um, when her mother is exiled, she's very depressed. She won't get out of bed, and Barbara becomes her main caretaker. And she ends up going to take to San Diego and eventually um, taking care of a child in a family that is not Jewish. And she sort of experiences all these things for the first time, like wearing pants and wearing makeup and drinking beer and eating Mexican food. I don't know if that was an awakening or not when she goes to San Diego to live a different life, but can you talk about what that meant to her? Barbara would have been perfectly happy staying in Milwaukee and volunteering in this preschool and then going to get her degree and becoming a preschool teacher and staying within this Orthodox community. That's what she wanted. She wanted to take on her mother's role. She wanted to you know, keep her friendship with Sippy. But she's thrust into this community in San Diego because her the Rebbitson and her father decide it's not healthy for Barbara to stay in San, in Milwaukee and care for her mother. And so she does have an awakening when she's in San Diego, for sure. But it's kind of imposed on her. She's not out there seeking like a lot of 
people do when they get to a certain point in her life. She she does experience all these things and she, for the first time and she, you know, it's a little bit of a sexual awakening. She understands who she is and her beauty and her power now that she's taking off these conservative long dresses and, and long sleeve shirts. But it almost, it happens to her and because she's so unmoored, the way she responds to it ends up becoming kind of tragic and the way she responds to you know, misinterprets um, certain behaviors of the people who are caring for her, ends up putting her in a, in a really bad situation, which is why she has to go and later do this mikvah immersion to forgive herself for some of her reactions to the people who have, you know, taken her in and showed her this new way of looking at life and faith. It's natural that if you're in a, a closed community and then you leave it, that you might question your faith. And she wasn't necessarily questioning her faith and faith in California as much as she was just seeing a new world. Do you think that personal choice to to maybe leave a community was necessary for her to come back or to see? Do you think that's important to see your faith as an outsider? I do think that for many of us, that is a part of our spiritual, for many people, this is a part of a spiritual journey to figure out who you are and how you want to live spiritually. For Barbara, I'm not so sure that this new lens on her, you know, life was all that helpful to her. I think it was part of her undoing and part of her further, um, you know, further, you know, what led her into, into this depression. So for her, for this particular character, I'm not so sure that that was that was so such a big part of how her spirituality um, evolved because she still because she was in exile she she longed for it she pined for it and he, all these other things that she was doing were almost like a solve and I think had she on her own chosen to live this life and sample these things she might have felt differently because she would have had the opportunity to question she wasn't really questioning she was figuring out a way to cope with her intense longing for this, her mother and her life in this community that had been completely decimated. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Michelle Braffman, author of the novel, Washing the Dead. So in this book, there's Yiddish words, there's Hebrew words too? Yes. A few Hebrew words. You have to kind of explain some of the ceremonies that might be foreign to people. I'm wondering when you write something so immersed into a specific community, what has your reception been from outsiders, people who might not, even secular Jews or people of other faiths, to this book? So um, it was challenging writing a book that was so immersed in a different culture and where there are a lot of terms and rituals that were for not only to non-Jews, but to Jews as well. And I put a lot of time into, and my agent was and editors were really great in terms of being very clear about explaining and defining each of these rituals the very first time they're mentioned. So nobody feels left out of the story. And as a result, I've been really thrilled because um, it just goes that old adage, the more particular, the more universal. And the response from non-Jews to the rituals has been, you know, especially the burial rituals, people tell me all the time what what, what happens in their culture. And I think that has to do with the fact of, that, that these rituals are explained in a very particular way. So I've been pretty thrilled with um, the response from the more general audience. 
I think, too, that when people go to fiction, they want to just learn about humanity and empathy, but I think they also are excited to learn about something they don't know about. Absolutely. And Jews as well, because I have a fairly decent Jewish education. It's not fabulous, but it's okay. I knew I knew nothing about the Jewish burial rituals. So a lot of Jews have been curious about this particular we'll call it like a little anonymous corner of Judaism. That's been really interesting as well. I do think people read to learn about specifically about other cultures. So how did you balance research and writing? Did you have a certain technique? There's a great craft article by Richard Rousseau about setting called Location, Location, Location. And he talks about sometimes you can over-research something and then, well, he was talking about place and then it feels like you're reading a travelogue. And that's, so I was always trying to balance you know, doing enough research so that I could use whatever I need, you know, that I could use the information that I was gathering in a way that was organic to the story. But I didn't want to get, sometimes I felt like I was, you know, it's fascinating. So it can also be a way to linger when you don't want to go back to the draft. Like, oh, I'm researching. I got to read this. I got to read this. So it's really hard to balance how to, you know, to incorporate enough of these facts you're gathering in your story so that it feels organic to the to the story and also to keep yourself off of <laughs> you know stalling for forever because it's more interesting and easier to read about something than it is to actually do the work of you know sitting in the chair and, and writing and failing and writing and failing and this book took you 7 years did you feel like you had false starts or what was the journey oh my gosh it was seven years of writing, and I have to say I don't really regret one word I wrote. Um, each draft led me to the next draft, led me to the next one, to the next one. And even I got amazing feedback, and I got some feedback that wasn't so great. But even the feedback that wasn't as helpful was helpful because it helped me define what I really was trying to do. If someone was, you know, would say, oh, no, I think this should be, you know, a such and such a story. Like, no, it's a it's a mother-daughter story. So I got a lot of feedback, and um, and the book just evolved, but a lot of it was me really understanding what the central conflict of the story was. It started out as a friend's story, and that stalled me for a while, but it evolved into a mother-daughter story. And once I figured out my central conflict, then it was just a matter of deepening it, deepening my characters, and you know, figuring out what that meant. And all elements of the book. But structurally, it didn't change all that much from the first draft. Is there anything about the novel that you want to talk about that I didn't ask you? You know, there's the writing of the novel, there's the revising of the novel, and now I'm, you know, taking my novel out into the world. And one of the things that I find myself talking about, which I didn't think about so much while I was writing it, um, was the healing and redemptive powers of storytelling. And in order for my character, Barbara, to forgive her mother, she has to understand her. And in order to understand her, she has to learn her mother's story. And that's really what a lot, that's, that's what fuels the book is her discovering her mother's story. And so I really love thinking about that because I think within the story, you have this woman trying to figure out the story of the people in her life, and she had to forgive the Robinson too and understand the context of their behavior. And then I think also just writing a story about forgiveness also has that kind of redemptive and healing properties as well because the whole book is about 
stories and how they heal and what they teach us about ourselves and the people we love. So does that knowledge that you've learned since it's been published, will that go into your next work? Or is that more of a just something that doesn't have to do with craft, but just the life of a writer? I think it's going to go into all of my work. I mean, I think I already knew that on some kind of deep level. And that's why this whole writing business has been so appealing to me. It's just been endlessly fascinating to learn other people's stories because and figure out who they are and what motivates them. Um, My next book, I think what I'll learn from this book is um, just from reading in public is what I can cut. <laughs> that I didn't need everything I have in, in, in here, that I'll be much more ruthless in terms of really keeping to the story and, you know, what what works. And I think I'll be able to hear that a little bit better because I'll imagine myself, you know, reading out, reading out in public. Um, and I learned so much from this drafting process about really knowing the central conflict of the story and keeping it present. My friend calls it like the DNA of the novel, that that has to be in every single every single line of dialogue. And um, I'll be much more relentless in the revision process and making sure that I'm really keeping that alive in, in, in every scene. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Michelle Braffman, author of the novel Washing the Dead. Can you share an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer, pick out a passage that you want to read, and then tell us a little bit about it? One of my absolute favorite writers is Andre Dubuse. And one of the things that I love about his work is how he integrates his own um, religion and spirituality and reverence to, to ritual in his story, specifically a father's story. I teach uh, creative writing and fiction writing at Johns Hopkins University, and I always teach this story because I think it. When we talk about characterization, we you know there's so many parts of your character that you have to know, and I love the way he um, explores his character's spirituality, which is something that I don't always see in other stories. You, and I think that's interesting, and it's obviously something that I want to do in my book. And I feel the same way about um, James Baldwin's um, Sonny's Blues for the very same reason. Do not think of me as a spiritual man whose every thought during those 25 minutes is at once with the words of the Mass. Each morning I try, each morning I fail, and know that always I will be a creature who, looking at Father Paul and the altar and uttering prayers, will be distracted by scrambled eggs, horses, the weather, and memories and daydreams that have nothing to do with the sacrament I am about to receive. I can receive, though, the Eucharist and also, at Mass and at other times, moments and even minutes of contemplation. But I cannot achieve contemplation as some can, and so, having to face and forgive my own failures, I have learned from both the necessity and wonder of ritual. For ritual allows those who cannot will themselves out of the secular to perform the spiritual, as dancing allows a tongue-tied man a ceremony of love. And while my mind dwells on breakfast, or major or duchess tethered under the church eve, there is, as I take the host from Father Paul and place it on my tongue and return to the pew, a feeling that I am thankful I have not lost in the 48 years since my first communion. At its center is excitement. Spreading out from it is the peace of certainty, or the certainty of peace. 
So tell me about just the writing for that. What speaks to you? Well, the writing is just stunning. I, I've never read that aloud before. And because the sentences are so beautifully crafted, you know, I never stuttered at all. And um, so the mechanics of it are just mind-blowing, and it makes me want to go back to my computer right now and <laughs> write really gorgeous sentences. But because, the, because every sentence is constructed so beautifully, the meaning is so clear and bold and beautiful in terms of really understanding what the role of ritual and God is to this character's life. And it's, it, it blows my mind. Can you read something, a passage from something you wrote? It could be something that was hard or changed from the first draft or just something that you're proud of. I'm going to read a passage from the first burial washing scene. And I'm going, I picked this passage because it's, um, it, I think, kind of contains the DNA of the novel. You get a sense of Barbara's longing for her mother. And I'm also picking it because it, I was very proud of it until I sent it to my, uh, to an editor and she just, she just completely stripped it to the bone and took out a lot of my beautiful metaphors <laughs> that I thought were fabulous. And she just said, you know, you need to kind of go cold on this. And, um, so I'm, I think it's for the, for this particular show, it's a good fit because it shows, you know, it was it was such a big part of my revision process. This particular pro passage took a long time for me to, to figure out, and hopefully I got it right. I glanced toward the Robertson, who lifted the sheet from Mrs. Kessler's face. I shut my eyes for a few seconds before I looked. I recognized her cheekbones, her strong jaw and nose, but the muscles surrounding them had slackened. She looked asleep, but not in a way that suggested a nap or even a coma. I beckoned her spirit as I had done last night, but Mrs. Kessler was dead. This fact clanked against the floor of my heart, a pressure formed behind my eyes. Mrs. Kessler was gone, 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 gone. I am six years old and I am sitting across the table from my mother, eating my after-school snack and watching her smoke. I spread peanut butter on my apple with a paring knife, wondering why she hasn't noticed that I'm using it or that I've lost my front tooth. She is looking through me. We're sitting so close that I can see her eyelashes, thicker than my doll Cassandra's, but she cannot see me. This is the first disappearance that I remember, but I now know that her leaving was gradual, an accretion of tiny moments that led to her affair and her slow exit from our lives. You don't just up and walk out on a family without preparing properly. After I've eaten most of my apple, she returns to herself and tells me to please put down that sharp knife. Later, she sneaks into my bedroom and puts a quarter under my pillow, and the next morning I pretend I didn't see her and that I still believe in the tooth fairy. I do and I don't. She's my fairy, sometimes make-believe, but still, mostly bearing treasures. Do you want to talk anything more about that? Well, the one thing that I, when I read this paragraph, the one thing about the character, um, it's hard to write a character who's depressed and who's kind of absent. And Barbara's mother, June, is is both of those things. So when I was reading this, I realized, um, and someone pointed this out in a reading, that a, a main feature, one of the, one of June's activities is she smokes. 
and she, and that's kind of her. There's a smoke, there's a mistiness. And so later when Barbara's daughter starts smoking and she catches her 15-year-old with some cigarettes, it makes her absolutely insane. And so one of the things that I think that it came to me over time and I appreciate it more now that the book is written is that this use of, of the smokiness about her mother and how maddening it was to Barbara. She wasn't a mother who was abusive or mean or nasty. She just vanished. And that quality made Barbara insane and informed all of her decisions in terms of who she chose to love and mate with. She wanted someone who was there, who didn't have that, that kind of mist or smokiness about, about themselves. So um, that's something that I thought about when I was just reading this. Where do you write? I write in my office. I am not one of those people who can, I, you know, take a laptop to Starbucks. I wish I, gosh, I wish I could do that. But I write in my office when my house is quiet. So I have two kids <laughs> and um, my husband. And when my kids go to school, I just, as soon as they leave, I get right to my desk. And then sometimes I'll write in the real wee hours of the morning before the house is up. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Well, that's the money question because and I, I now I'm thinking I need to have one of those laptops I can take elsewhere because I'm it's hard to make that break when the office is in the house and I can think, oh, I could just go fix that. And it's hard to kind of shut the door and say, OK, now I need to be present and need to be in my family. And I do it. I really just kind of close the door. And when my family's around, it's hard to write anyway. But um, having my office in, you know, in my house and having my writing space in my house at, for a while was great when my kids were little. Um, but now it gets harder and harder. So I am considering that laptop. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? When, when I'm drafting something new, I will, because I obviously need quite a bit of affirmation, I'll bring my husband into my office at night and I'll read him my pages for the day. And he's instructed to respond in a very particular way, meaning he can say, keep going, um, sounds great. And then I'll say, what do you mean? You know, you have to tell me more. And then he knows not to. So he's kind of reads my very, very, very first pages. But then I have some writer, some friends who are writers, they read for me. And then I have friends who are not writers, who are the kinds of people who I think will, would probably, might probably read my book. And their help, their feedback is extremely helpful because it, it's very visceral. They're responding to what they like and what they don't like. And they're not, you know, my, my, my writer friends give me a different kind of, they can help me spot technical problems. But my other reader friend writers, <laughs> reader friends, they, they give me a different kind of feedback. And then I've also worked with a um, book doctor and um, you know, my agent is a great reader. My editors were fantastic. So it changes as I move through the process. But I, I rely on a lot of people, and I'm very grateful to them. But I also don't give them something until the piece is ready. So I take the piece as far as I possibly can on my own, and then I'll solicit the kind of feedback I think I need to get me to that next level. Because if I, if I involve too many chefs in the kitchen, then the soup doesn't taste so good. And how have you dealt with rejection? Um, I had a lot of rejection. Rejection kind of fires me up. Because at first I get the rejection letter and I'm upset and angry and challenging everything that the person said. And then I sit on it for a while and, and I start to look at the really what 
the nature of the rejection was, what specifically the, the whoever it was, agent, editor, didn't like about the book. And I think, okay, wait a minute, what's what's there? Is there something that's there that I really do need to address? And then I'll, that will I'll get a little frustrated. And then all of a sudden I'll get fired up. Like, okay, I'm going to go back in there and I'm going to make this better. And then I get really excited because I think I am making it better. And I think every draft, this book got better and better. And then I'll get think, okay, this I've taken it as far as I can and I'll get some, you know, I'll get some feedback. So it, there, there are definitely phases <laughs> to my, to my um, response to rejection, but ultimately it's a motivator because I just want to get better. I want to get better at writing. I wanted to get better at writing this book. I want to be a better novelist. I want, I'm really hungry to learn the craft and even any, any feedback is going to help me learn. And what is your favorite word? I don't know. Um, well, some of the Yiddish words I love, like schmaltz. That's just a great word. I mean, because they, they are what they sound like. But in terms of what my favorite word that I use that like in the English language, I have to think about that. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Michelle Brafman, author of the novel Washing the Dead. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.